Hello, and welcome back to the Peds Sports Podcast. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and this is a show for orthopedic surgeons and really anyone who takes care of pediatric sports medicine patients. Our goal is to keep you up to date on the literature in our niche so you don't have to comb through the journals every month. As you heard last time, we started putting together episodes throughout 2020, and today you'll hear the first one we recorded. It's a bit different format than last time, a one-on-one in-depth interview instead of a big panel discussion covering several articles. So, let's get into it. I'll start things off today by discussing an article about trochlear dysplasia from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. The paper is in the March 2020 issue of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics, and it's entitled 3D Knee Trochlear Morphology Assessment by Magnetic Resonance Imaging in Patients with Normal and Dysplastic Trochlea. The lead author, Andy Pinnock, will be on the line with me today. Anyone who knows Dr. Pinnock knows he is very into the trochlea, and it's fair to say that he spends much more time than the rest of us thinking deeply about trochlear dysplasia. So Andy, if it's okay with you, I'll try my best to concisely summarize this article, and then we'll chat about the implications. Great. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So the authors used knee MRIs of patients with and without patellar instability. They had an engineer do some fancy work with MATLAB to create 3D reconstructions from the MRI, which gave good visualization of both the bone and the cartilage of the trochlea. They found that, not surprisingly, patients with patellar instability had lower trochlear volume and depth. This showed up when measuring the bony anatomy, as demonstrated potentially by a CT, but it showed up much more extensively when using the cartilage anatomy on the 3D recons generated from the MRI. The trochlear deficiency could be seen throughout the trochlea, but was most dramatic in the proximal trochlea. This makes sense as symptomatic instability is most problematic with the knee extended rather than flexed. The authors say these 3D MRI reconstructions are potentially better than CTs because they show cartilage so well, and they're better than the de jure classification, especially in children, since de jure doesn't work well in skeletally immature patients. Unfortunately, at present, it takes up to two hours for an engineer to generate the 3D images. So with that, Dr. Pinnock, are you using 3D MRI reconstructions now in your practice? We are not routinely using them just for the exact reasons you said. It it isn't automated, the process. It takes probably an hour for an engineer once they've figured out the steps. And hopefully we'll move in that direction where all this is automated. Because I do think you have a much better understanding of the 3D morphology when using these MRIs versus CT scans. And so I guess both when that happens and even today, How do you treat trochlear dysplasia? For example, in a patient with patellar instability, how does your management change if the trochlea is flat or even convex? That's a a great question. I think there's a lot of variability across the, the country and around the world. I think in patients whose growth plates are open, we're very limited. And the reality is we're not going to do much because the, the physis is right underneath the trochlea on those patients. So you don't really have an opportunity for an osteotomy. Our colleagues in Europe, particularly France, obviously are performing more trochleoplasties. And we have some American surgeons who are now reporting early outcomes with trochleoplasty. But these are in skeletally mature patients. So I think that does become an option. 
And I think in looking at those trochloroplasties, better understanding of that anatomy will help with the optimal osteotomy if you are going to be a surgeon who actually considers this. I think we're finding that maybe a little early recognition of trochlear dysplasia, there might be some role for early bracing. Uh, There's very little evidence for this, but there is, I know, interest that maybe if we can identify this very, very early, maybe we can do some pavlic harness treatment similar to the hip, but an equivalent for the knee to help better mold these trochleas. But it's an exciting time. There's a lot that's uh, our knowledge is advancing. So I don't think we've perfectly figured out how to use this information, but a better understanding will hopefully help. Very interesting stuff. As a a little bit of a potential spoiler, is there other research going on uh, you could give us a highlight about, about that trochlear dysplasia in very young patients like you alluded to? Well, we, for the last few years, we've been looking at several projects at our institution. We've been actually using ultrasound as an alternative to MRI because you can see the cartilage surface quite well, the topography pretty well with the ultrasounds. We haven't worked out exactly how well the ultrasounds correlate with the MRI. It looks pretty good. We've screened newborn children trying to define what is, quote unquote, a normal sulcus angle and a normal trochlear depth in these uh, kids. We found an association with hip dysplasia and trochlear dysplasia. Uh, There's another group out of Scandinavia, which has preceded our work and has found similar findings. But I think there is a possibility that we could use ultrasound to possibly screen for early trochlear dysplasia. Then the real question becomes, do we have any treatments that can change the natural history of trochlear dysplasia? We're trying to follow some of these patients who are being treated with a pavlik for their hips with serial ultrasounds of their knees to see if we're seeing any changes in the shape or the morphology. And we don't have enough patients to really say. I mean, anecdotally, we have a few cases that seem exciting and promising, but certainly we need to look at this a whole lot closer and there might be some room for improvement here. Really fascinating stuff. So there could be a time when we're ultrasounding hips and knees and potentially starting a pavlic harness for either one. Uh, Look forward to stay tuned about that progress. Before we uh, move on, I'd like to jump from research to uh, just some basic practice philosophies, if you don't mind. I have some rapid fire questions for you. The first one is first time patellar dislocators. Do you treat them surgically or do you wait till the second dislocation? Obviously a very controversial area, not to uh, go into too much depth. Historically, I uh, always waited for a second dislocation to stabilize them, assuming there's no large osteochondral fracture. I think there's more data from multiple institutions, including uh, out of Ohio, Minnesota, and others have shown that these younger patients are at a higher risk of recurrent instability. I tend to risk stratify these patients. And I give the family the information based on the risk factors they have. Hey, these are the real odds that your child comes out again. And then I let them make the decision based on that. Uh, the vast majority in my practice are still choosing non-operative care after first-time dislocation, but I do have some patients that are choosing surgery, and we are tracking these patients prospectively so that hopefully we can then come back and, and report, at least based on patient selection, how these two patient groups are doing. And, and maybe one will be better than the other. I can't tell you for sure which one will ultimately have better outcomes. 
Thanks. Uh, what about MPFLs? Do you have a go-to, whether it's allographed, autographed, quad tendon turned down? I, in our institution, we like allographs. Uh, we've published data on this showing that the allographs seem to function just as well as autographs. Multiple other institutions have also published similar findings. So I think that allograft works very well for this extraarticular reconstruction. I, I don't think I need to uh, turn the quad tendon down. I think that is another hit to the quad when many of these patients already have deficient VMOs and weak quads. I don't like adding a further insult to that extensor mechanism. So we've been really happy with the results of our allograft. So uh, for me, that's a pretty easy decision. Great. And for the traumatic sort of athletic dislocations, when are you adding a, a TTO? Um, very controversial, obviously, in the literature. People talk about a TTTG of 20. We have published data as well as others showing that a TTTG of 20 is not the same for all patients. If you have a patient who's four foot six uh, versus a really tall basketball player who's six foot 10, that TTTG of 20 might be very different and represent different things. So I do use the TTTG. For me, clinically, I rely much more on a high grade J sign. So if they have a high-grade J sign, those are the ones I think that a soft tissue alone may not be enough to stabilize it, and I'm more likely to consider a tubercle transfer. So I use the TTTG, but for me, it's the high-grade J sign that tends to drive decision-making at this point. I like that. And is there a role for proximal realignment in your practice? Proximal realignment is mainly used for the congenital dislocations. And I think that's a, a bigger surgery. Those tend to be your younger patients. Those patients typically need a, a lateral release where I don't really routinely do lateral releases other than those congenital dislocations where it's contracted down. And that's a much bigger surgery and uh, more involved. But typically, typically, it's a younger patient population as well. Gotcha. You already alluded to this. I know you treat children for the most part, but is there a role for trochleoplasty in your practice or maybe in the future of your practice? I have limited experience on trochleoplasties. Um, obviously, it's an intriguing concept. I've been concerned about some of the future patellofemoral pain issues and arthritis issues that some of the European literature would suggest. But obviously, there's a trend where people are doing more and more. And I think clearly, we just need to study it better. And I think we'll rely on a lot of our American surgeons to see how their data and outcomes compare to the Europeans and compared to our alternative treatments that we're currently using. And lastly, how often, if ever, are you derotating a femur that is antiverted for patellar instability, or do you rely on a TTO or other interventions in those cases? Great question. My clinical practice is all patients who come in with patella instability, I look at their hip internal external rotation. If they have uh, excessive hip external or internal rotation out of the realms of normal, when I get their MRI of their knee, I will get a rotational profile. We have looked at a biomechanical study where we rotated the femur and we assessed its impact on the patellofemoral joints. And we found that by derotating the femur, you can correct the TTTG to a mild extent. I will tell you for my clinical cases, I find a TTTG still more powerful in correcting that J sign than a derotation osteotomy. So 
probably in my practice, it's once every three or four years, I'll do a derotation osteotomy. Tends to be more in a skeletally immature kid where I can't osteotomize the tubercle. But clearly, we need better research to guide what is the best augment to a soft tissue procedure. Is it a TTTG transfer? Is it a a rotation is it a trochlear osteotomy? I think that's where future research will hopefully look at the additive effect of each of those procedures to see what bony procedure is the best to add for each patient. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for letting me ask you a bunch of controversial questions with no right answer. Um, I think it's it's instructive, certainly for me, hopefully for the listeners too. And all of that stuff really rings true and is reassuring. You know, those derotation femoral osteotomies, even when I'm tempted, if, if they're only unilateral, I can't bring myself to derotate one side and make them asymmetric if I don't think the other side is going to go on to need a patellar instability surgery. So those are, those are tricky. Well, thank you for joining us. No, I appreciate you uh, highlighting this research, and I commend you on this project. I think uh, these podcasts are great. 